Okay. You can turn over in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. Continue our study through the text of Matthew. Just want to read our text for us this morning. It's Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse 20. Matthew 20, beginning in verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, asked, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? And she said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. And Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, We are able. And he said to them, You will drink the cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be among you, but whoever would be great among you, you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And when they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him, and behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And the crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes. And immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Now just in way of review quickly, we looked last week at this petition by the mother of the sons of Zebedee. And uh, we looked at how they wanted to be at Christ's left and right hand. That request is right there by the mother. And we saw his response, and he responded first of all to their ignorance but he also responded to their, his inability to grant such a request, saying that he was in submission to his father and that that's not his to give, that it's already been prepared by my father. And so we saw the request, the response, and then we saw the resentment last week from the other disciples in verse uh, 24. When they heard, they became indignant. They were upset, not because of the two disciples that went over and tried to... Uh, use and manipulate their relationship because their mother was the sister of Jesus' mother. So they thought, well, as cousins, we can get in on this deal somehow. But uh, they weren't upset at that. They were just upset at the simple fact that they did not think of that first. <laughs> so they were kind of elbowing each other thinking, well, why didn't we think of that? We should have went and asked Jesus this request. And so they weren't humble and religious like you're thinking they were proud and arrogant just like the two disciples and the mother that went to him and we looked at this requirement last week in verses 25 to 28 and we said there that basically uh, in verse 25 when Jesus called them he said you know the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and so we looked at greatness as viewed by the world and how people climb the ladder of success and they use ambition and their abilities and even dictatorship kind of mentality as far as leadership or they use their personality to uh, climb the ladder of success. And Jesus said, this isn't to be with you. This isn't the way it should be with you. And then today we're going to be looking at, first of all, the pattern that Jesus lays down here the precept and then the pattern that Jesus lays down for us in, uh, in the scripture here. You know, one thing that is very interesting that when you're serving God in any capacity, um, our flesh is weak. 
And sometimes we serve God out of wrong motives. Maybe we serve God because we feel guilty. Maybe we, feel we serve God because uh, we feel somehow that will earn us brownie points with the Lord somehow. Um, and all those motivations, only God can see. Only God can know the human heart. And so as we look at our text this morning, I want you to think of the idea of greatness as viewed by God. The world goes after greatness. The, the world goes after fame and fortune and all that stuff. But there's a greatness that is to be had that is the right kind of greatness when we go about it God's way and not our way or the world's way. And so Jesus really gives them an exhortation here, you might say, in verses 26 to 27. He says, basically, after getting done, that the world says, you know, their leaders exercise authority over them and they rule and they dominate through dictatorship, and that's not right, that's not correct, that's not spirit-led leadership at all. But he says in verse 26, speaking to his disciples, it shall not be so among you. See, the way of the world is the exalted way. The way of Christ is the humble way. And we get those mixed up sometimes. There's a lot of people throughout Scripture, and we're not going to go into all of them this morning, but just to go over briefly, if you think in the Old Testament, you think of somebody like Abraham, and Abraham said this, Behold, now I have, I have taken to speak unto the Lord, Who am I but dust and ashes? That's Abraham speaking, the father of the faith. Isaac even was willing to give up his life to die as required. Jacob cried out to the Lord and he said, I'm not worthy of the least of the mercies and all the truth which thou hast shown unto me, your servant. Joseph, who was basically sold into slavery, you remember the story in the Old Testament, by his brothers, and he never retained any bitterness or vengeance in his heart, the Bible says. But he spoke kindly to them out of a humble spirit. Moses, even, that, that wonderful servant of God, when God enlisted him and asked him to serve him, he says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? He didn't look at God and say, yeah, I got the right, you got the right guy. I'm the man. He didn't, he, that wasn't his attitude. He was very humble. He was very... Uh, filled with humility. Joshua even, who, incredible, led the, faced the, the Lord after the defeat that came because of the lack of faith, says he tore his clothes and he fell to the earth upon his face and put dust, dust upon his head, a sign of humility. Someone like Gideon, where he says, Behold, my family is poor and the least in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's household. All these are wonderful, great servants in the Old Testament. David said this. Turn over to, to uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 29. I just want you to follow along as I read this. 1 Chronicles 29. Look at verse 10. And this is David writing this, this wonderful uh, portion of Scripture here, beginning in verse 10, it says, Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly, and David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, and the God of Israel our Father forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor came from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But look at what he says in verse 14. But who am I, and what is my people, that we should be able thus to offer willingly for things come from you and of your own have we given you for we are strangers before you and sojourners 
as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow, and there is no abiding. O Lord, our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand, and it is all your own. I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness, and in uprightness of my heart I freely offered all these things, and now I have seen your people who are present here offering freely and joyously to you. He gives the praise back to God. David doesn't say, yeah, I'm, I'm a great man. All those men that we just mentioned there are men who were mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11. And it's kind of a, the, the, the chapter of faith in the Bible. But there's others in the Old Testament. You think of Hezekiah and Manasseh and Job and others, Jeremiah. In the New Testament, you think of somebody like John the Baptist, who was probably one of the humblest people that ever lived because in Matthew chapter 11, remember when we went through there, Jesus said of John the Baptist in, in verse 11 of Matthew 11, there is not risen a greater person than John the Baptist. So if we think of God's formula for greatness, the road to greatness is through humility. So John the Baptist must have been one of the humblest prophets around. It was John the Baptist who said, he must increase, I must decrease For it is he who is so worthy, and I who am unworthy, even to unloose the laces of his sandals. This is the predecessor of Christ, and yet he remained humble. The greatest is always the humblest in God's economy, in God's kingdom. But that's not so in the world. We saw last time how The disciples wanted to use ambition and kind of the power of their relationship and personality, all these things that wanted to kind of get inroads into the kingdom and the seating arrangement. And God doesn't operate that way. Those are the world's ways, not God's. You think of Peter in the New Testament in Luke 5, 8, when he says, Depart from me, O Lord, For I am a sinful man. I am a sinful man. Or even the Apostle Paul in Acts 20, 19, when he says, I have served the Lord with all humility of mind. See, it's always, beloved, the humble heart. It's always the heart of a servant. It's always the idea of being a slave that ushers in the greatness of the kingdom of God. Remember, when we went through Matthew 18, verse 4, it says it is reserved for those who come as what? Little children. Humble little children. And he said, whoever therefore shall humble himself as a little child, the same is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. We know that James reiterates the idea of what God thinks of pride says in James, God resists the proud, but pours out grace to the who? To the humble. And so this lesson is here for us, and it's, it's important that we understand that Jesus is trying to explain to his disciples the arrogance and the ignorance of self-centeredness. You know, you've heard the phrase, get over yourself. It's almost become a quaint little phrase that people say to one another. The Father really has chosen out the humble of this world. If we pursue greatness, we have to pursue it on his path, and his path is the path of humility. It's not the path of building yourself up. So he says in verse 26, it's not to be this way among you, disciples. This is the way the world does it, but this isn't the way you should do it. In the world, people get their greatness through political power or ambition, personality. It's not so with you, he tells them. He says basically everything's reversed in God's economy. Everything's reversed in the kingdom of God. You remember in John 18, 36, what did Jesus say? My kingdom is what? Not of this world. 
not of this world. What does that mean? He meant that my kingdom doesn't operate on the same principles that the kingdoms in this world operate. It's total opposite. It's the very opposite. In fact, it's totally reverse. In the world, you climb up the, 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 the pile of bodies to get to the top. That's not so in God's kingdom. In God's kingdom, you help those who can't make it. You carry them on your, your back. Lenski said this, the great men are not sitting on top of lesser men. They are bearing lesser men on their backs. So Jesus points out to his disciples, he wants them to understand, you know what, this may be the way the world does it, this road to greatness, but this is not the way that I have prescribed for you. This is how I laid it out for you. This is not what I want you to understand. You know, there's a lot of people that pursue Christianity and even pursue the limelight of Christianity and Christian service because they want people to look up to them or they somehow want people to be drawn to them. They want to be on a Christian superstar list. They want to have the prominent place, the place of prestige and honor, respect, power, control. This is what's in their head. And some of these people do anything to climb that pyramid of Christianity just so they could say they're on top. They have the most TV programs. They have the biggest church. They have the most people. That's not how God judges our lives. That's not a true evaluation of how God looks at us. I think a lot of the great people in the the Christianity today are going to be at the end of the line when we get to the kingdom. They're not going to be the ones that are exalted to the lofty places. I remember one time I was flying from the west coast to the east coast, and as we were flying over the Midwest, I'm looking at all these little patches of tiny little towns, like in places like Nebraska or South Dakota or wherever I was, I don't know. But, I mean, there was nothing around anything. And all of a sudden you'd see a little couple houses and a little community and then you know, you'd fly for five minutes and then you'd see something else. And I couldn't help to think that, wow, you know what? In that little community there's probably some man down there who was called by God to minister to those people. In that little community where there is no growth <laughs> unless they have children, where there is no potential you probably have a town of less than 100. And yet, God has strategically placed them there. And I found myself sitting on the airplane thinking, wow, I'm glad I'm not in a place like that. And then God checked my heart. And he kind of spoke to my heart quietly and said, would you be willing to go if I do? <laughs> if I do call you to a place like that, I think the faithful men of God who are in these type of towns and small little fellowships that are faithful to teach and care and shepherd the body, even though there's no glamour, there's no recognition, there's no radio station even to be on, I think they're going to be exalted when we get to heaven for their faithfulness. And so he points out to them, this is not the way for you. Don't you go down this path, in verse 26. It shall not be so among you. But then look at what he says. He makes a profound statement. Whoever would be great among you, you must be your servant. Idea there in the original language is whoever wishes among you to become great. Now, is there anything wrong with being used greatly for God? Is there anything wrong with having a desire in your heart to be used in a, in a greater way for God and His glory? No. There's nothing wrong with that. Jesus isn't saying here that we sit around and, and just eat humble pie and look at our navels and do absolutely nothing because, oh, God forbid that God would use us in any way because if God uses us in any way, that might exalt us. That's not what He's saying here. 
As a matter of fact, when you think of some of the statements of the Apostle Paul, or he, he said that you should run the race that you should what? Win. You don't just kind of lollygag around in a race and go, well, I don't want to win because, you know, that might be wrong because people might want to think that I'm really in it to win. Well, beloved, we should be in it to win. That's the whole purpose of running the race. See, it goes back to motive. What are you concerned about? He also, Paul also reiterated that we ought to be concerned that our works will stand up to the test of fire at the judgment seat of Christ. He called us to examine whether our works are of wood, hay, and stubble, or gold, silver, and precious stone. When we come to that day and we face our Lord Jesus Christ, that we would receive reward for the things that we do in our body according to their goodness or their worthlessness. See, it's not wrong to seek glory in eternity. There's nothing wrong with that. It's not wrong to seek exaltation. God tells us to do that. It's not wrong to seek those things. It's only wrong to seek it for the wrong reason. Very key. It's only when your motivation isn't right, like James and John we see here in the text, or you seek to lord it over others, or you seek to be esteemed more than others, or you seek to somehow dominate others and exercise great, greater authority and greater power over them. See, it's wrong to seek those things when they come out of selfish reasons. If you seek greatness on God's terms, beloved, you will seek it on the track that he has ordained, ordained ahead of us, and that track is the track of humility, the track of suffering. I mean, there are those that want greatness in the kingdom, but they want to bypass the suffering part. That's kind of where James and John are at here. That's why he says, you don't even know what you're asking for. You want to sit on my right and left hand? You don't even know what you're saying. And then he asks them, can you drink the cup? And what do they They just respond? They don't even think about it. They just say, sure we can, no problem. And Jesus tells them, oh, you will drink. Not the whole thing, but you'll, you'll taste of my cup. Which they did. They were martyrs for the faith. See, if we seek glory and exaltation for the cause of Christ and for His glory, not our own, that's what God desires. Even in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul says that if a man desires the office of overseer, he desires what? A good thing. That's a good thing to be desirous of being used of God as an elder or a pastor or a deacon. My wife asked me the other day, she said, when, when did you start desiring to be a pastor? And I said, you know, I don't even know. I can't remember. I don't know. It wasn't when I went to Bible college. I didn't even know what I was going to do when I got out of Bible college. I just went to Bible college because I was a brand new Christian and came out of the Catholic Church and I didn't know anything about the Bible. And I thought, I need to tell people about the Bible, but I don't know anything about it, so I'm going to go to Bible college and learn more about God and His Word. And that's what I did. And from there, God threw me in a little church, Fair Havens Baptist Church in Spring Valley, California, west of El Cajon there, and the first day they put me in a Sunday school class with some high schoolers and junior hires and said, here's the book. You know, I was doing an internship because I had to graduate from college. I had to do an internship. So I found this on the board at the, at the college. And I said, okay, well, this sounds good. I'll go do this. Well, the first Sunday I'm down there with the kids. They gave me a Sunday school book. And they said, here, go teach them for 45 minutes. And then you can come up to the service. And I thought, okay. Never done it before. Slightest idea. Well, what did that lead to? That led to 15-plus years dealing with young people, youth ministry. 
And I remember as a youth pastor thinking, man, I'm never going to be one of those guys that abandons youth ministry just to move up the ladder and become a, a pastor in a church. That's not what I'm about. I'm, boy, I'm sold out for kids. I'll be, I'll be a youth pastor till I die. That was my plan. That wasn't God's, clearly. And so God arranged things in such a way that all of a sudden I find myself here at this church teaching the Word of God on a weekly basis, and it's like, wow, I, I enjoy this. I desire this. But I didn't wake up one day and say, boy, I, I want to be a pastor. How do I go about it? Some people do. That's fine. That wasn't the case with me. I just desired to be used of the Lord. And I was willing to do anything and everything from you know, the first day I went to a church when I was away at college, right after I got saved, they put me in, at the door and had me handing out, folding and handing out bulletins. I was, I'd never even been in the church before. It was First Baptist Church of Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania. It was a real, you know, straight collar, real, real fundamental kind of mentality there in that church. But I just got in, rolled my sleeves up, and started ministering, serving. So many people today, I think, in our world are going about it the wrong way. He says, if you want to be great, let him be your servant. That's the path. The road to greatness is through servanthood. Don't get tied down with this world. It's not going to last. It's going to, it's going to burn up one day. Those things are not important. What's important is what's eternal. What's eternal? God's Word and the souls of men and women. That's it. Everything else is gone. Where are you spending your time? You don't want to get caught up in this culture's kind of a mad dash just to, to, to work all your life so that you can have some retirement and sit around the rest of your life. That's not what Christianity is about. What you want to do is spend yourself for the purpose of the kingdom of God. Someone asked me, do you ever feel like you're going to get burned out? I don't understand people that get burned out. I just don't. They must be miserable. Doing something miserable, I would probably get burned out pretty quick. But you know what? If, if you burn out in the ministry, if you get to the point where you, know, you, just, you just can't do it anymore... I think you're trying too much in the flesh. You're relying too much on yourself. I mean, I look at things that happen every week, and I'm thinking, I don't know how this even takes place. I'll go home sometimes Sunday afternoon and think, well, that was kind of cool how that song kind of just tied in with, you know, the message. But I, when I pick out the songs, beloved, I don't sit down and spend hours and hours and hours perusing the music and thinking, okay, now, what's this? How's this? What am I going to teach? I don't. I just give it to God. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but most of the times it does. You have to be a servant. You, you have to have that kind of mentality. It's not about us. And that's what he's trying to say here. He wants them to abandon themselves for the purpose of God, for what's eternal. It's a very important principle in Scripture. You cannot lead until you have proven you can serve. You cannot lead until you have proven you can serve. You know, I always get real weary about people that show up to church and, you know, the, the, the first or second Sunday, man, they're rolling up their sleeves and say, well, now how can I be an elder? Or how can I be a deacon? Or how can I do this? Or how can I be that? Or how can I do this? And pretty much it's like, you know, just kind of relax a little bit. You get to know us. We'll get to know you. And part of that getting to know you is seeing how you serve the body. Are you one of these people that come into the body and don't lift a finger to do anything for anybody? You expect people to serve you? Or are you the kind of person that's willing to roll up your sleeves and move chairs and, and mop floors and clean toilets if that's what needs to be done? What's your mentality? Very important. 
because you can't lead until you're willing to serve. And Jesus is trying to get that across to them. Now, he uses a very interesting word here. He says, whoever would be great, great among you must be your servant, diakonos. It's the word deacon. That's from where we get the word deacon for the office of deacon within a church, those who serve the body. But don't think that for a second that this word is a religious word. It's not. It's a very secular word. It has a religious use, but it didn't back then. They didn't hear this message going, oh, he wants us to be an, hold an office in the local church of deacon. No, that's not what they thought. It's a word that had to do with the lowest form of menial service. You would hire a deacon to clean up your yard. You would hire a deacon to take away your trash, to maybe serve a meal or collect garbage, some kind of menial job. It's not a dishonoring term in any way. It's just showing us that, you know what, there's a certain level of service, and it needs to be done. It's just talking about the guy who serves in a menial way. may not take a lot of education or training or skill. It could be an unskilled kind of a thing, but they're willing to serve. The word was really taken out of paganism. It was sanctified, and it was made the most dominant word in the New Testament, if you look through the New Testament, to speak of the service of Christians. I mean, they could have chosen other words. He could have said, you know, to be great, you have to be a priest. To be great, you have to hold an office. You have to do this. You have to do that. You have to be a leader. No, he chose the word deacon, and he chose the word deacon because it speaks of humility. It speaks of Christians serving Christians. See, that's what we're called to do as a church. We're called to serve one another for the glory of God. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, you can turn over there, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul talks of him being a servant. Look at verse 1. It says, and this is how one should regard us, speaking of the apostles, as what? Servants of Christ. Servants of Christ. It's interesting. He doesn't use that word diakonos there. He uses a different word that refers to a slave who would be under the hull of the ship, down in the galley, pulling the oars. And so he says, you know what? Basically, I, I'm not even a deacon. I'm just a third-level galley slave an under-rower for Christ. I mean, he really had the proper perspective. I mean, if anybody could have lifted himself up, it was the Apostle Paul. But he didn't do that. In 1 Corinthians 3, 5, he even asked this question, who is Paul? Remember? Who is Apollos? And his answer basically is, they're nobodies. They're basically servants. I mean, do you know who Apollos was? Apollos was the greatest living Old Testament scholar in their time. Paul was the greatest living New Testament scholar. And what's he saying? He's saying, you know what? It's not about education. It's not about status. It's about being a slave of Christ. It's about serving Christ with everything you have. And then he even counters that back in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 8. He talks to them about, oh, you have everything you want. He's using sarcasm here. 
Oh, you're going to become kings. And he goes on and on. Because they were, they were exalting themselves. And Paul was trying to point out to them, that's not the way, that's not the path to greatness in God's kingdom. William Law wrote this. He says, let every day be a day of humility. Condescend to all the weakness and infirmities of your fellow creatures. Cover their frailties. Love their excellencies. Encourage their virtues. Relive, relieve their wants. Rejoice in their prosperities. Compassion at their distress. Receive their friendship. Overlook their unkindness. Forgive their malice. Be a servant of servants and condescend to do the lowliest offices of the lowliest of mankind. I think we need to definitely learn a little bit about that today in our society. What's it mean to serve even in our church? What's it mean for us to serve one another So he says here, in, back to, to Matthew, he says, this, it shouldn't be this way among you. It should be different. Whoever wants to be great among you, you should become a servant. And then he says this in verse 27. He even notches it up another level. He says, whoever would be first among you shall be your slave. John MacArthur just wrote a great book based on a series called Slave. I encourage you to buy that book and read it. It'll give you a whole different perspective on what it means to be a Christian. What it means to be a Christian does not mean to have happy little go-lucky life, you, you know, tiptoe through the tulips kind of thing. That's not what Christianity is about. We're called to be slaves of Christ. Slave is not a popular term in today's society. He uses the word doulos there, a bond slave, a willing slave. They knew what it meant to be whipped and beaten, live in terrible conditions. They knew all that. And somehow when we become Christians, we begin to believe the lie, this health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. Oh no, we deserve the excellent things. We deserve the best of everything. Our wallet should be overflowing with cash. We should live in the biggest house and drive the nicest car. That's a false gospel, beloved. That's a gospel that will damn your soul to hell. And yet, you turn on Christian radio, you turn on Christian TV, that's what you hear. Get all you can. My best life now, you know, the whole deal. Paul looked at his life this way. He said, if I live, I live. If I die, I die. But both I do as unto the Lord. Whether I live or whether I die, you know what? I'm the Lord's. What's he saying? He's a bond servant of Christ. Over and over again, Paul uses that term to call himself a slave of Christ. And it came at great cost. I want you to ask yourself this question this morning. What sacrifice do you make to serve Christ? What sacrifice do you make to serve Christ? What pain do you endure? Or do you sit back and demand mostly to be served? I mean, are you willing truly to serve Christ with everything you have? Or are you holding back? Are you saying, well, I'll do it, but when it gets uncomfortable, I'm going to pull in the reins a little bit because... You know, I'm not going to go into that realm. I have a family. I have a job. Somebody told me one time, they asked me this question. They said, you know what? It kind of bothers me that a lot of pastors think that everybody's life should revolve around the church. And they said, I don't think a lot of pastors understand that people have lives outside of the church. I didn't really answer them. You know, our society, the church used to be the hub of activity in a community. If anything happened, it happened at the local church. It wasn't just to come to 
Sunday meeting. I mean, you had things going on throughout the week. You had Bible studies. You had Sunday evening services. You had, you know, Thursday morning business. You had all sorts of things going on. It all revolved around the church. And people would come out and they would support whatever it was. Was it a sacrifice for them? Sure. They could be home with their family. They could be doing other things. They could be relaxing because they worked a hard week. What sacrifice do you make to serve Christ? Have you nightly, neatly packaged it? And Well, my service to Christ happens between 10 and 11.30 on Sunday morning. Because if that's what it is, brothers and sisters, you need to examine your walk with Christ. Maybe the world has crept a little too far into your life. See, I don't think sacrifice is sacrifice unless it's uncomfortable. Right? I mean, that's what it is. I don't think it's sacrifice for us to come to church on Sunday morning. I'm sorry, I just don't think that's sacrifice. I think that's expected. That's 101 Christianity. The Bible says clearly, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as is the habit of some. Don't do that. So he points out to them clearly that this this exhortation, this precept is, you have a different way because you're my children. Don't follow the world's road to greatness. Follow mine. The road of sacrifice. And then he gives them a pattern in verse 28. He says, Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. I mean, what Jesus says about himself throughout Scripture really should characterize his followers, right? Because we're called Christians. We're called to follow his example. And what he's saying here is, disciples, listen to me. Don't go down the worldly road to greatness, the one where you exalt yourself and climb over each other's back and and just get to the top any way you can. That's not the way I've called you to do it. I've called you to do it just the opposite. The road to greatness in my kingdom is through service. And I want to be your example. I want to be your pattern. My attitude should be your attitude. My kind of living should be your kind of living. If you want to be great as God wants you to be great, Jesus is saying, be like me. That's what he's saying. Look to the Son of Man. John finally got it. The reason I know that is because he wrote in 1 John chapter 2, verse 6, he says, The one who says he abides in Christ ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. See, he finally, it finally came together for John. His life here is centered around himself. I want to sit at your right hand. I want to sit at your left hand. Can you drink on my cup of suffering? Oh, yeah, no problem. Jesus, put us up there. We'll do it. They had no idea what they were asking. They spoke out of ignorance. And Jesus, it says here, his role as the Son of Man did not come to be served, even though as God he had every right to demand it. And yet he gave us an example. I mean, that's the example that we should be following. I think if every Christian could get that into their head, that you know what? I'm part of a body. I'm here to serve. I'm here to serve somebody. I'm here on Sunday. I'm here to serve somebody. Who am I going to serve today? Who am I going to serve in the Wednesday night group or the the Friday night group when I go to group? Who am I going to serve? We don't just go to those things so that we can sit back and hear somebody teach and and get puffed up in our spirituality and then go home and, and, and just do whatever. We're called to serve each other. Turn over to Philippians chapter 2. Because we see here a picture of Christ's attitude, very common portion of Scripture, attitude when it comes to service. Philippians chapter 2. Look at verse 6. 
Now, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. What mind was it? What was in Christ's mind? He said this in verse 6. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the form of what? A servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, even to the point of death, even death on a cross. What was the outcome of that? Therefore, because of his humility, because of his willingness to die to himself, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, he's the supreme example of humility. He's the supreme example of servanthood. And you can apply this to the church. You can apply this to your family. You can apply this to your work. If you're there just for the sole purpose of getting a check or you're in your your family just for the sole purpose of looking for somebody else to serve you, that's the wrong attitude. When's the last time you said, you know what? Things are going to be different. I'm going to take on the role of a servant. I don't care if it's in my family, my work, whatever. If something needs to be done, my church, I'm going, to, I'm going to be willing to do it. I'm going to offer. That's what Christ did. He subjected himself to the humiliation, even to death. Now, obviously, today we're not asking you to do that. That could happen one day. It will happen one day. Those who follow Christ will be martyred. But the disciples had a hard time grasping this, and the reason I know that is because in Luke 22, they were arguing about who is greater in the kingdom, who's going to be greater. And Jesus had to paint a picture for them. He said, I'm among you as the one who serves you. In John 13, Jesus said, he laid aside his it says there that Jesus laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself about and he poured water into a basin. This is as they're all sitting around arguing who's greatest. And he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments, he reclined at the table again. He said to them, here's what he said, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, neither is one who sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. You want to be blessed in your Christian life? I hear a lot of Christians today, oh, it's so hard, and I'm just, you know, spiritual warfare. All You want to be blessed in your Christian life? Start serving people. Start in your family. Start in your job. Start in your church. Start serving other people for the pure reason of pleasing the Lord. God will bless you. Jesus' servanthood led to the ultimate sacrifice. He gave his life. It says in John 15, 13, greater love has no man than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. Jesus Christ, the very God who created this world, laid down his life because of his love for you. He knew that's the only way your sins could be taken care of. And I don't know about you, but when my life is threatened, I don't hang around very long. It's not natural to hang around very long when your life is threatened. God has given you the ability, kind of a natural inclination for self-preservation. We have to overcome that through the power of the Spirit and ask God to give us that self-giving pattern that should be normal in Christians' lives. He wants them to know that, you know what, you, you have to give of your life for me to be my disciple. That's why he said, take up your cross and die to yourself. But it says that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And then 
leading into our communion time, he says to give his life a ransom for many. To give his life a ransom for many. That word ransom is used to redeem a slave. It's the price of redemption. To buy their freedom. It's used only twice in the New Testament. Here in Mark 10, 45, both times it's in reference to Christ's giving of himself to redeem us, to buy us back from the slave market of sin. We need to understand that the unbeliever is a slave to sin. It's a slave to the flesh. The slave to Satan and death. The Bible says that clearly. And when Christ redeemed us from those slaveries, he gave his life in ransom in exchange for ours. And so when we acknowledge that, when we come to Christ and we say, I, I, I want that forgiveness from you. I don't want to do this my own way. I want to do it your way. I want to deny myself and follow you, repent of my sins, turn from my sins, and turn to God, cry out to him. Then we can say with the Apostle Paul, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. What the law could not do, God did. You can't get saved by keeping the law. I don't care how religious you are, how perfect you keep the law. You can't do it. It's impossible. It says that he freed us from that sin. Galatians chapter 3 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Ephesians One says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Titus chapter 2, 14, Christ gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. And 1 Peter 1 reminds us that we were not redeemed, beloved, with perishable things like silver or gold, like slaves were, but we were redeemed with the precious blood as of the Lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. And it's because of that that he was worthy to take the book, as Revelation 5 says, and break its seals because he was slain and he purchased for God with his own blood from every tribe and every tongue and people and nation. See, Jesus Christ's ransom was paid to God, the Father, to satisfy his holy justice. It's not like God just could look at your sin and say, okay, I'm just going to forgive you based on nothing. That would be like somebody showing up in the court who murdered somebody, and he says, oh, you know what, I'm sorry I did that. I'm really sorry, judge. Can you let me go? And the judge said, oh, yeah, sure, go ahead. I believe you. That wouldn't be just. That would be wrong. That judge would not last very long. Jesus' ransom was paid to God to satisfy his holy justice. And it was sufficient, listen to this, it was sufficient to cover the sins of everyone who has ever lived and ever will live. It was sufficient to cover their sins. The Bible says over and over again that Christ died for the whole world. 2 Peter 3 says, It's not the Lord's will for any to perish, but all to come to repentance. 1 Timothy 2.4 says that God desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. So he's provided atonement for every person. But I want you to hear this as well. His ransom is sufficient for every person. But it's not valid for every person. Because if it was valid for every person, every person would be saved. And every person is not going to be saved. A minority of people are going to be saved. The people who put their faith, their trust in that sacrifice. 
His redemption is for many. And that's what it says there in Matthew. To give his life as a ransom, not for all, but for many. Those who come to him in faith. I think when you begin to understand the idea of limited atonement, you have to be careful how you talk about that doctrine. Because Christ clearly died for all, but his death is not effectual for everybody unless they believe. That's what activates it. That's why in Isaiah 53 it says, Surely our griefs he bore, our sorrows he carried. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastising of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. It's not talking of physical healing there. It's talking of spiritual healing. It was talking of physical healing. None of us would ever be sick. That's the problem with these faith healers. They heal somebody, and, well, the sickness comes back next week, and they've got to go back the next week. It's ridiculous. God doesn't heal people that way. He heals people immediately. He heals people completely. Every time in Scripture when Jesus healed somebody, you never saw somebody coming back saying, oh, you know, it didn't really work. <laughs> Maybe I didn't have enough faith. Jesus healed people with no faith. So Christ then is, gives us this precept for greatness, and he also gives us the pattern to become servant leaders in our midst. And then he closes just quickly with this, in Scripture here, this illustration that was just right there to be had in front of him because the disciples had a hard time grasping all this stuff. And we look at the pity of our Lord. It says in verse 29, as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. Why? Because they knew who he was. They saw all the miraculous things that he was doing. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. That word behold kind of should draw your attention, should perk your ears up. And it's not the idea that, oh, wow, wow, look at these two blind guys. Behold, two blind guys. That's not what he's saying. See, people had blindness back in that society. It was very common. Very common to be blind back then. And when the people were blind, in their religion, they looked at it as judgment from God. They must have done something wrong. They must have some sin. That's why they're blind. So what would they do with those people? What were the religious people, Pharisees and all that? They would shove them off to the side because they're somehow they're tainted by sin, and we don't want to be spoiled by their sinfulness, so we'll just push them over in the corner. So if you're crippled, if you were blind, that's why these people always had to cry out to Christ, because the religious people would never bring them up to Christ. That would almost be a form of defilement. It's kind of the opposite of what our society is today. I mean, if we see a blind person crossing the street, what do you do? You have respect for them. You know, if you see a crippled guy in a wheelchair trying to get into a store, you don't just boldly walk by him and just blow the guy off. Hopefully you open the door for him. Why? Because you have respect for him. Well, that's not the way it was back then. You would stay away from those kind of people. So as Christ is coming out of Jericho and all these people are pressing in behind him, these two blind guys are sitting there, which is very common. The behold is there because to draw attention to what they said, not who they were. It says, when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they couldn't see it, obviously, they cried out. Look at what they cry out. And here's why the behold is in that verse. Lord, have mercy on us. And then what do they say? Son of David. What's that? That's his messianic title. So somehow they knew who Christ was. Doesn't tell us whether they were his follower. They don't know, but we can kind of insinuate that somehow they knew who Christ was. And so they cried out, have mercy on a son of David. You see the cries of the blind. You know, beloved, today we're not only dealing with blind people physically, but there's people who are blind spiritually. They don't see it. The dots are not connecting. They don't get it. 
Wait, you're telling me this guy died? A Jew died on a cross? And I have to believe in that or I can't be saved? They just don't get it. It just comes up empty. These guys were at a point in their life where they were crying out. They became beggars almost because their plight was so tragic. The two blind men cry out to Jesus as he passes by. And look at verse 31. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be quiet. Shut up. That's a polite way. Really, they were saying, shut up. But they cried out all the more. Remember, I was in a hospital once visiting somebody. I was walking down the hall, and I heard this poor woman. Help me. Help me. I mean, every 15 seconds. Help me. Help me. And I was in there visiting the president. I just couldn't, you know, I couldn't concentrate with this poor lady shouting, you know, it's echoing through the hallways of this, this uh, it's actually a convalescent home. And so on my way out, I stopped by, and I was like, are you all right? I need the nurse. So I went down and got, you know, hey, you know, there's a room down there and the lady's crying. Oh, yeah, that's Melba, you know. Yeah, she's, <laughs> she's fine. And I thought, wow, how sad. I hope I don't end up in a place like this. Now, Melba may have been fine. I don't know. But I, I remember her cry was just one of those cries of need. And that's what these guys were doing. And the, the crowd was just criticizing them. They just criticized them. Shut up. You're disrupting the, the parade here. We got Jesus. Don't you know who he is? You know, you're, you're interrupting. And it says that they cried out all the more. See, that shows there. You know what? This shows me that when someone, when you relate this spiritually, when someone is crying out for Christ to be saved, do you think they're going to get saved? I think they're going to get saved. I don't think they need us there to lead us through a little track and say, okay, now, now do you do this? Do you do that? And now pray this prayer exactly right after me. They don't need that. You know, for, for years within the church, discipleship has been such a big thing, and I believe in discipleship. I think it's important. We should follow up with those who come to Christ and make sure they're grounded in the Word. But you know what? It got to a point where it's almost overplayed. Like, well, what if someone comes to Christ and they, they aren't discipled? Oh, my goodness. What's a, what are they going to do? Well, I think they have the same Holy Spirit we have. I think God's perfectly capable of taking care of them. You know, we, we have to rely more on God and not on programs, not on studies and not on all this stuff. Rely on God, rely on his word. And these cries of these blind guys were desperate and the crowd was critical of them. But look at the compassion of the Lord. And this is the Lord we serve. This is the God who died for us. They cry out again, Lord, have mercy on a son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them. You can see, you know, they're, they're, he's making their way his, past these poor blind beggars, really, off in the corner, and the crowd, shut up, shut up, you know, and all of a sudden Jesus stops. You can just see the crowd, bum, 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 you know, they're all bumping into Jesus. Got a picture of this in my mind. Whoa, he's stopping. What's he stopping for? He called out to them, and he said, what do you want me to do for you? It doesn't even say that he went over there at this point. He just cried out to them. And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. At that point, Jesus probably made his way over through the crowd. And some of the crowd may have even been backing away because blind men, you know, they're kind of tainted with sinfulness. They don't want to be, they're thinking, what is he doing? He's going over to this, these blind guys. And he says he touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight and they followed him. What's this showing the disciples? This is showing very clearly that, you know what? Don't think just because you've been with me for three and a half years, whatever it's been, and you've left your career, you've left your family, you've left everything to follow me. Remember, that's what Peter said. Remember? He asked Jesus, hey, we, we did the self-sacrifice thing. What's in it for us? What Jesus is showing his disciples is, you know what? You, you, you can come in at the last minute here. And you can be right up here at the head of the parade with me. I bet you these these two blind guys were walking right behind Jesus after this. And the disciples are back there going, how did they get up there, man? I mean, you know, we've been following him for three and a half years. And these guys are they're blind and they just cry out and they join the parade and they're, they're in front. 
They're up there walking with them right behind the Lord. See, that's how the pity of Christ is. It doesn't matter what kind of life you've lived. It doesn't matter how your life has been filled with sin all these years. It's never, ever, ever too late. Look at the man on the cross with Christ, right? He was able to cry out, Lord, have mercy on me. Let me be in your kingdom. Take me to paradise. Okay. It's all a condition of the heart. It's because God does the saving, beloved. We don't do the saving. God does the saving. And when God is willing and God opens the human mind and the human heart to the truth of the gospel... And that light goes on and they realize, wow, I am a sinner and I need the grace of God. I've got to throw myself upon the mercy of God. Nothing I can do in and of myself to save myself. That's when a person is saved. That's when their heart, their mind is quickened with the gospel of Christ. See, it's not about us, Lord. It's not about us. It's about Christ about his glory, not ours. I ask you again, what are you sacrificing for Christ? I hope you are in some fashion. Don't ever think it's enough because when we stop and we consider what he's done for us, we could never, ever sacrifice too much for him. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we pray that as we even now prepare our hearts for our communion time, that you would minister your grace to it. And Lord, we ask that you would uh, enable us to evaluate our own Christian lives. Are we kind of like the disciples and just want, want the head of the class, sit at the head table, kind of just listen to Jesus teach over and over and over and over again, but never seem to really sink in? I think eventually it sank in with them because obviously they served Christ. They died martyred deaths. They gave everything they had to give for him eventually. And Lord, I pray that our hearts would not be so cold and so removed, so endeared to this world that we would not hear your voice when you call us to serve you in some fashion or form. might not be on a big, grandiose level, it might just be helping out a neighbor or encouraging a family member or helping out a body, someone in the body of Christ. Lord, all those things are forms of sacrifice. And I pray that you would keep our hearts humble as we serve you. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.